Hey everybody, this is uh, Ben. I know most of you guys in here know him. Um, and for probably the last six to eight months, uh, he has been persistently asking us questions about being baptized and wanting to be baptized. And uh, um, me growing up, a staunch Southern Baptist, um, thought he surely had to be older. Um, but as Abby and I just questioned him about, you know, what, what it meant, um, he, he had all the right answers. And um, he, uh, he knows that it's more than just going swimming. He knows that it's more than just getting to drink Kool-Aid and eat crackers in church. And, uh, and right now he's a little cold, I think. Um, so uh, we're just thrilled, thrilled beyond belief to be able to uh, stand up here and do this. And so, um, Ben, can you tell everybody why you want to be baptized this morning? Because I want to love the Lord and follow him. Exactly, buddy. And so, uh, Ben, Benjamin Michael Schweitzer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're turning this way. Um, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Buried with him in death, raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs> and uh, like the Simmons did with their book, we actually have some cards in the back. Um, if anybody just wants to write a note of encouragement to uh, remind him of this day um, so he can look back on it. And it'll mean a lot to him the rest of his life. I know it will. Um, if you guys could do that, it would be great. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to pray for him. <laughs> God, we just, uh, um, again, thank you for Ben, um, for all he means to our family, God, all he means to this church. Um, I pray that uh, we would continue to lead him um, on a path of righteousness, God. Thank you that his heart has uh, been open to you so far, God. And I pray that he would just grow. And grace and 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 uh, and just loving you more, God, and serving you more, God, and drawing others to you because of what you've done for him and for all of us, God. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Oh, I almost dropped my bottle. That was close. That was close. Sitting right here. That would have been a bummer. So you just have a through here. That would have been a bummero. Man, what a great place to be on Easter morning in the baptism pool. There's so many great images of baptism, and one of the most prominent is to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. This morning, it's my privilege to baptize Jody Walker. Uh, Jody is a husband and a father. He's married to Denise. He has a daughter named Claudia. And uh, the Lord has brought them, led them into this body in the last few months. And Jody is believing Christ for the first time in his life and is wanting to follow him and wanting the uh, church to know that. Uh, He and I have spent time together working through the scriptures and understanding what this means. But if I have an opportunity to teach the witnesses and remind them of what baptism is, I'm going to do that. So I'm going to share a brief passage And just to kind of connect us with what's actually going on right here. This is from the book of 1 Peter. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now pay attention to Noah. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, 
Baptism corresponds to Noah and the deliverance of God's people through a watery ordeal called the flood in that case. He's done it a number of times over the redemption story. He did it with Noah. He did it with Moses in a little miniature ark as he's delivered through the watery ordeal of the Nile. He did it with God's people crossing the Red Sea first and then the Jordan River later. And he's done it with every single baptism ever since. Delivering his people through the watery ordeal. He says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. What a problematic passage if it's taken at face value and not engaged contextually. Contextually, he goes on to say, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's what Jody is doing today, then you bet it saves you. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's called faith. And it goes along with baptism. So Jody is making that profession today that he is trusting Christ, that he's made an appeal to the living God to reconcile with his creator through the finished work of another. He's wearing the righteousness of a blessed other. And he's doing that today, standing in a baptism pool. And he's going to be baptized. God's going to show up in this moment. And just like he reckoned then, a few minutes ago, a baptized, believing member of the people of God, he's about to do that with Jody. It's a big moment. God shows up and he reckons Jody a baptized part of the people of God. Uh, one of the things, let me just tell you quickly too about Jody and his family. One of the things that I've enjoyed seeing in, in them that I think is what Mike looked for in Ben and what you should look for as a parent or as a friend and someone who is considering faith is, is there an appetite for his word? Is there a hunger for his story? And I'm seeing that in the Walker family. I'm seeing it in Jody. So it's cool in some way, it's a cool confirmation that God's at work in the life of this man and his family. As I baptize Jody now, y'all are witnesses to this, and then we're going to pray for him. What we're going to pray for is we're going to pray for his journey as now a believer, a new believer, and as a husband and as a father, because he's a shepherd now, a shepherd in the home. All right. Jody, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Do you have any hope of being saved apart from Christ alone? No. Are you trusting in him to be your Savior and your Lord? Yes. Jody, based on your profession of faith, stand this way a little bit. And Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray with Jody. God, you are so, so good to give us this sweet privilege of walking with this family, to give us the sweet privilege of being witnesses to a man that is proclaiming faith in you through the finished work of Christ. Lord, we all today yet again stand before you, appealing to you for a good conscience on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We enjoy his finished work today. We enjoy an especially vacant tomb. We enjoy your deliverance of your people through the watery ordeal time and time again. We love you, Lord. We turn the rest of this morning over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was a seriously high and holy day in the life of the church, and uh, some days like this that I'm especially, I feel especially inadequate to preach, and um, 
beyond the inadequacy, I feel privileged and I'm thankful for the, I don't ever take it for granted, the opportunity to expose God's word. I hope today, I'm, I'm going to pr- begin the sermon with prayer, and I hope today that in these next few minutes that the Lord can sort of arrest you with the high and holy and awesome privilege of sitting and hearing the exposition of his story. And that we can gather as a people that were united and built, built and united in that order through a bloody cross and a vacant tomb. And this morning that we can, our, our hearts can sort of race and we can be really attentive to what the Holy Spirit's going to communicate today. This sermon today is going to be about faith and belief. <clears throat> so let's start with prayer. Or <clears throat> first this morning, before we really lift up specific requests regarding the next few minutes that we spend together, I want to pray for another church in our area and a church that's near and dear to our hearts. I want to pray for Commerce Community Church. I pray for David and Whitney Ferguson. Lord, I want to pray for David's worship. I pray that it is fueled by just an enjoyment and satisfaction with the finished work. Lord, I pray that you will guard his heart from that ever being commonplace and routine. I pray you will guard him from thinking of his his role as a pastor and a preacher as a job, and that it would be a true scandalous calling. Lord, I pray that his worship and his wonder and his study and his time with you, first of all, that it spills over onto his family. Bless his Whitney and the children, Lord. I, I just uh, I pray that their marriage will be a walking illustration, not only to their children or their child and the one on the way, but to their church that they're walking with and to commerce. Be a walking illustration of the gospel. Lord, I pray for his ministry to this church. I pray along, that he alongside Ron Perone, um, that you'll use them for your glory, that you'll give them wisdom that's beyond any one of them, that in plurality there'll be a wisdom that guards and protects and guides that church. And Lord, we pray that there'll be a salty, sweet, bright, aromatic people in commerce, and that like a sweet garden that's cultivated and grown over time, that you will grow the garden of the church in commerce. Lord, for this little garden this morning, I pray first of all for my um, exposition, my preaching. I just pray that you will um, speak in spite of me. I thank you that you do often. Lord, I pray that we can truly this morning engage the gravity of what John is communicating here in chapter 19. That we can be arrested with the force that we're holding in our hands in this Bible. Lord, I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any one of us. I pray for children. I pray for... um, I pray that you'll give them a peace that passes understanding in the next few minutes. That they will be calm and attentive, or at least not a distraction. Lord, I pray even for the little bitty ones that are in here, the ones that we think they're getting nothing, that they'll realize that they're part of something. Even if they don't hear a message specifically that they see as their parents are sitting and other people are sitting and engaging quietly and listening And as the Bible was read and unpacked, that they see that they're part of a story and they're part of a people and that little identities are being developed. 
Lord, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can do that. I pray that he does that. Lord, I pray for parents to be equipped this morning. I'll turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> John chapter 19. <clears throat> then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It's on page 905 of your pew Bible too. I'm gonna, I used to do that a while back and I want to do that again. The Lord is drawing folks into our body right now that, that don't have a, a background in the Word. So I want to help you find those page numbers and those texts because I want you to see what we're reading. It's not going to be true of every English Standard Version, but it'll be true of many versions or many copies of the version um, that the page numbers will match up. So if they don't, then you just need to learn where your books are. <laughs> or you need to get one that's like mine. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. <clears throat> and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns <clears throat> and put it on his head and arrayed him <clears throat> Sorry, in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Thank you, bro. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Hey, Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. <clears throat> When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic 
But the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Hey, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Peter that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. One of the beauties of engaging a chapter or a couple of chapters over and over and over again is you start to see these things emerge. You see repeated phrases emerge And it's in those, for example, in those repeated phrases that you begin to connect to what the writer is wanting you to get. 2 Timothy tells us that Scripture is breathed out by God so we can trust that the writer's not just of his own will and his own notion wanting you to see something, but that God wants us to see something. And there's a phrase that's repeated four times in this passage having to do with the fulfillment of Scripture. And interestingly, it's having to do with belief. It's a connection in 43 years of being in the church, 37 years of being a believer, I've never seen. 
I've, I don't know how many times I've read this chapter or I've had a sermon preached or I've a lesson taught from it. And it's not until this week that the Lord has shown me and hopefully, hopefully going to show us today something that John <clears throat> really wants us to know. Something that he really wants us to see. That the details and the events of the passion were the fulfillment of Scripture. Let's look at them briefly, and then we're going to look at them more in depth. First, briefly, chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, hey, guys... Let's not tear this thing. Instead, let's gamble for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things to fulfill the scripture. The second one's in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So there's a jar, a, a jar full of sour wine sitting there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to, held it to its mouth. The next one is in verse 33. When they came to Jesus, they'd just broken the legs of the other thieves on either side. Breaking the legs of someone on the cross was to speed their death. Because the way you breathed on the cross was to raise and lower your body. That's how you survived. So to break the legs would be to speed death. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it's born witness, his testimony is true. And he knows he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And the fourth reference is right after that. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. These passages that John made the point to group together, taken with, in this context, is an oath, are important. Here's the oath. I read it, but I want you now to see it as an oath. It's sort of like John looking up from his quill. He pulls down his little Foster Grant reading glasses, looks up from his quill, and he looks to us 2,000 years later and says, I want to make sure you get this. He makes an oath to the reader, to us. He says, hey, by the way, he who saw this has borne witness. His testimony, John's always talking about himself in the third person. It's just funny. I don't know why he does it, but he does. He's speaking about himself, and he's referring to self as him and he. Just, let's, let's just say you did it, John. I bore witness. My testimony is true. I know that I'm telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. John is seriously burdened to make the point that these things Every detail were true and that they were a fulfillment of Scripture. 
There's a little bit of Greek here that's going to help. It's not much. It's not enough to, to cause you to think it's academic and disconnect. It's just enough to sort of unpack this. A little bit of Greek will help us understand what he's saying here. He says, my testimony is true. Looking over his reading glasses with the quill sitting down. He says, hey, my testimony is true. And I know I'm telling the truth. And then there's a purpose clause. In order that you also may believe. Just imagine John is looking at you right now. I'm writing these things so that you also may believe. For, the Greek word there also means since. Since... These things took place, another purpose clause, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. I want you to see that the details, this is what John's saying, I want you to see that the details, first of all, that they're true, and I want you to see that they're connected to the fulfillment of previously recorded scripture. This is seriously crazy important to John, but it's an obscure thing. And ironically, he connects it to belief in order that you also may believe. I have never in my life connected the fulfillment of Scripture to your belief. I've never connected it to my own. I've never heard an evangelist preach on the fulfillment of Scripture so that you will come to faith in Christ. Yet John the evangelist makes the point that the fulfillment of Scripture is connected to faith and belief. So let's take a closer look at each one of these. First, the reference to the tunic. Turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. It's on page 457 of most ESVs. The tunic was not torn in order to fulfill the scripture. We know that's a purpose clause. Actually, you didn't know that. You know it now. It just says to fulfill the scripture. In the original language, it's a purpose clause. The tunic was not fulfilled in order to fulfill, or the tunic was not torn in order to fulfill the scripture. Now let's go back and read the scripture that he's talking about. I'm going to read the entire psalm. It's not long, but there's so many references to the cross here that it's worth reading together. Psalm chapter 22, written by David, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, But I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind. Despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. 
you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. And the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Psalm 22 has many references to the cross. The one that connects to this John chapter 18 passage is in verse 17 and 18. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, what I want you to realize is this was written a thousand years before Christ. It was written by David as he's lamenting the innocent sufferer, likely himself in this case. It's a lament for the innocent suffer with such remarkable detail of the cross. Little did David know that his writings, inspired by God, would not only predict, but hear these two words, <clears throat> but determine the attire and what's done with that attire at the cross. I want you to hear that. Prediction amazing. You see prediction, you're like, shazam, that's amazing. But you see determination and you go, whoa, that's taking it to a whole nother level. Seriously, you see this and you go, man, something is going on there that's so much bigger than I realized. First of all, he's predicting the attire of the cross. He's determining the attire of the cross. Crucifixions were done naked, or the one crucified was naked, completely Stark and absolutely naked because it's the ultimate shame. It's complete with counted bones and starers and gloaters. Christ was crucified naked. Little did David know that his lament, inspired by God at that time, would not only predict but determine too the division of his clothing and the unity of his tunic. And the fact that lots would be cast for it. 
Now, there's no way for us to know the mind of these two soldiers. Four, I guess it's because it's divided four ways. There's no way for us to know the mind of these four soldiers. We can't know what they thought like or why they wanted to have all this clothing. But I know troops. I served with troops, and I was one of them, Marines specifically. But Marines and soldiers think a lot alike, so I can trust that we thought a lot like these guys thought, and I bet that what they're about here is they're going to get this clothing knowing that Christ is famous or infamous, that they're going to sell it and either buy smokes or Copenhagen. That's what they're up to. So these guys, man, I know how they think. They didn't say to themselves, though, you have to realize this, they didn't turn to each other, the four of them, and say, hey, you know what? The Hebrew scriptures say that we're supposed to divide these clothes up. Oh, and you know, the Hebrew scriptures also says that we're not supposed to tear this tunic, but instead we're supposed to cast lots for it. You need to realize in the mind of these four jokers, it's their idea. Hey, guys, I got a great idea. Let's divide this thing up four ways. And we better not tear, tear that tunic because it'll be much less valuable torn than it will be whole. So let's gamble for it. And the winner takes the tunic. The plan was their idea, but ultimately their idea was God's plan. Recorded and written and inspired through David a thousand years earlier. They didn't tear it in order to fulfill the scripture. I want you to hear that. They didn't tear it in order to fulfill the scripture. These troops reminded me of another guy. You don't need to turn there. It's, it's not quite a side note. Uh, if it was a side note, I'd probably leave it out. Uh, just for the purpose of um, simplicity this morning. It's connected enough to where I want you to see this guy. His man named Caiaphas. These troops reminded me of Caiaphas. How God used the troops to do exactly what the scriptures said reminded me of what a man named Caiaphas would do in John chapter 11. Listen to this passage. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees like a bunch of tattletales and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them says, Eureka. Ding! A man named Caiaphas says, I've got an idea. He's high priest that year. And he said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's, watch, better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, John looks up from his little Foster Grant reading glasses, puts down his quill, and he makes an editorial comment for us to get. He says, hey, by the way, Caiaphas, he did not say this of his own accord. He thought it was his idea. I got a great idea. He thought it was his idea, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's us. Caiaphas is thinking, man, you guys know nothing at all. I got this all figured out. Not realizing God is using him to fulfill Scripture. Remember the passage we just read over there in Psalm chapter 22. 
Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Caiaphas is one of those dogs. And he's just doing exactly what Scripture said he was going to do. He wasn't a robot mindlessly saying Christ should die. He's doing what the Scripture said he would do. And here's a little side side note. And one that uh, I think is pertinent. It's entering, I think it's important and interesting that this intersects with the untorn tunic. Specifically, what Caiaphas was prophesying. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In our Old Testaments, torn robes and torn clothing are the picture of divided and torn kingdoms. What Christ was going to do on this cross, the tunic would illustrate in that we would be one people brought together through this finished work. That's an important side note. It's a good one, worth sharing. doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. kind of does, but it's important. The tunic was not torn in order to fulfill the Scripture. Now, let's look at the second one. Go back to John chapter 9. I know, stay in. Actually, turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. He said he was thirsty in order to fulfill the Scripture. Now, earlier this week, when I began to study this and consider, okay, this is in order, these things happen in order to fulfill the Scripture. My first question when I read that and I really started to connect this, I thought, was he even really thirsty? He said he was thirsty in order to fulfill the Scripture. That's the weight of the point that John is making. The Scripture is that powerful. It's that driving in the details of the cross that Christ says, I thirst. Now, we can know from Psalm chapter 22 that he was, in fact, thirsty. Don't turn back to 22. I'm going to show you something in 69. It says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a little broken or like a broken pot, clay pot, and it's just a shard of a broken pot. And they're dry as a bone. He says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So Christ was thirsty because the Scripture said he would be. And then in Psalm 69, beginning in verse 19, David writes, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Here David is writing about the faithful Israelite who is lamenting over his own sin and reproach. We can connect it to the cross in the sin that Christ bore on the cross, our reproach. When Christ looks for pity, he found none. When Christ looks for a comforter, he finds none. When Christ is thirsty, They give him sour wine to drink. That was his nourishment. As Christ bore our sins on the cross, he drank what the Scripture said he would drink in order to fulfill the Scripture. The next one is in John chapter 19, verse 36. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. 
John writes, he says, these things took place in order to fulfill the Scripture. The first one I want to look at is the legs that were not broken. Here, not broken. There are two references. I'm going to have you turn to one of them, and I'm going to read the other one. Exodus chapter 12 is on page 55. I forgot to give you my page numbers. On page 55, beginning in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that's bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. Now let me just tell you, it's just so easy to read this passage and for us to miss the context. I haven't really escorted you into the context because I just hope and pray that you read your Bibles. Just on your own as families, that you know something about the Exodus. If you don't, you have work to do. Good work. But if you read about the details of the Exodus, you know that the final plague was the plague of the Passover, where the firstborn of Egypt died in their beds, in their cribs, in their dog kennels, in their livestock fields. It wasn't just the Egyptians that died. It would be the adult Egyptians. If dad was the firstborn in his family, he doesn't wake up. If your puppy was the firstborn in the litter, he's dead in the morning. You go outside and the firstborn of every cow and sheep is dead. This was a seriously profound plague. And that's the context where the wind and the wing of the destroyer is coming overhead and taking those firstborn. And here's the way to not die. If we can just climb into the context. Here's the way to not die. Those of you who shepherd families think, okay, man, I don't want my family to die. I really would pay attention to this. No foreigner or hard servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And would you pay attention to this detail if it meant deliverance? I mean, you've just seen the plagues, nine of them, brutal plagues. And this small detail, you shall not break any of its bones. This little lamb that you sacrifice in the home that will be your replacement... Don't break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Whew, good. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The other reference is in Psalm chapter 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The first reference in Exodus was written 1,500 years before Christ. The second reference was also a Psalm of David written 1,000 years before Christ. This little story of the Passover lamb and this story of a a, a people being delivered from the slavery of Egypt is not just some ancient story. It's our story. In fact, Paul said Christ is our Passover lamb. So we can look at what Christ has done for us and understand that he is our propitiation. He is our replacement. So it's appropriate like their little innocent replacements that bleeded 
and bled, that their little lambs, as their legs were not broken, their bones were not broken, that our innocent replacement's legs were not broken. There's no small detail. I want you to realize he's that close to having his legs broken. Imagine these soldiers standing there with a sledge, a long sledge, long enough to reach up to their legs, and they come to the first thief, whack, twice, breaking their legs, speeding death. And then they come to Christ in the middle, oh, hold up, he's already dead, don't waste your energy. Seems like a small detail, it was written about 1,500 years before Christ. Don't break his legs because the scripture said don't do it. They thought it was their idea. Don't waste your energy. The reality is it's the scripture that drove that detail. Not one of his legs will be broken. All of his bones will be kept. Not one is broken. The last one, turn to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. A lot of y'all are going to need a page number for Zechariah. 799. <laughs> Here's the last reference to the fulfillment of the scripture. They looked on him whom they had pierced. That's referring to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This passage was written 500 years before Christ about the judgment and restoration of Judah to Jerusalem and is connected to our gospel. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse themselves from sin and uncleanness. I'd be shocked if there is a fountain was not written from that passage. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. This passage certainly had meaning and hope for the readers and hearers in the Babylonian exile 500 years before Christ. But now 2,000 years after the cross, we see that what God communicated to Zechariah regarding Judah was to ultimately, hear this, drive what happened at 3 p.m. on the Friday Christ was crucified. It's about 3 p.m. that he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And shortly after, when they would have been breaking bones, where they come to him instead, and they pierce his side, thinking, hey, I got an idea. I'll just poke him in the side with my spear not realizing that they were fulfilling Scripture. They were doing that because the Scripture said they would. The thing I want you to see, the thing that John wants us to see, is that Scripture drives the events and details of the passion, not the other way around. This is not a history book. How easy it is to reduce it to that. Ah, it just gives me the details of the cross, and that's the way I'll read it. Not realizing it's not a history book. It's not recounting things only. And it's also not even just a foretelling or future telling book. That would be amazing. That's the Shazam I was talking about earlier. Miracle. Amazing book. I can read it and tell me what's going to happen in the future. Amazing. 
It's more than that. It's driving what's going to happen. It's the force that is driving the details of the passion, and not just the details of the passion, but the details of a people being built. We're walking in the fulfillment of Scripture right now. And this should change the way you read your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. This is another account of the arrest. It's on page 833. I'm making y'all work this morning. Just know that. And I'm okay with it. We're not done. So do the work. Here it is. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He's speaking to Judas at that point. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We all know from John, that's big-eared Malchus right there. And then Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword back in your sheath. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think for a moment I can't go freestyle? (laughs) Do you think I can't call in millions and myriads and millions and myriads of angels to swoop in here and kick some serious behind and deliver me in this situation? But look what he says next. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled That it must be so. The events of the cross happened, not as an historical event, but in order to fulfill the scripture. Here's what I want you to see, the weight behind the scripture. This is what this sermon prep has done for me. I want you to imagine the events of creation a little differently. We have an account. It was written by Moses thousands of years, or depending on how old you think the earth is, older than that, after the events of, of, of uh, creation, written by Moses. I want you to imagine the events a little bit differently. I want you to imagine that first, if God had created Adam before he created anything, before he spoke light and dark, waters above or below, or critters, you know, creepy crawly things everywhere. Imagine the first thing he did was breathe life into Adam. Okay? And then he had hands Adam a quill and paper, papyrus or something, I guess. He says, hey, Adam, I want you to write something down. So just imagine that he says, here's, here, Adam, here's what I want you to write down first. I want you to write down, God will make light. So Adam writes it down, writes it down. And then later, we come back, however many thousand years later, after Adam... We read the scripture and we could say, in order to fulfill the scripture, guess what? There was light. Do you see the weight of this scripture being that weighty? As God's speaking and saying, let there be light. The term is ex nihilo, from nothing. He spoke light into existence. He spoke galaxies into existence. From nothing, he created all things just simply with his spoken word. That's power. If you don't see power right there, that's power. But realize that the scripture bears the same weight. 
The scripture is the spoken word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Men recorded and wrote. It's the breathed out word of God. Imagine had he breathed in Adam and said, Adam, I want you to write something that I'm breathing out now. There will be light. And in fulfillment of the scriptures, sure enough, there was some light. Man, that changes everything. That changes this book. I'm going to tell you what. I was talking about Scott, talking to Scott with us earlier this week. I believe that for the past eight years, we as a church have had a really high view of this book. I really do. We've been in John for almost eight years. That hopefully qualifies as having a high view of this book. But I'm telling you what, this takes it to a whole other level. Wait a second. It's not just a foretelling. It's not a history book. It is the driving force behind the events. It's as if, let there be light. As if, don't tear the tunic. As if, stick him in the side with a spear. As if, thirst. And he thirsted. Man, that changes everything. So we can look at this book as the previously spoken reality of not only what has been done and what is being done, but what is yet to be. John makes this point. He develops it and he connects it to belief. This is, a, this is Evangelism Sunday. It's crazy to me. I've never in my life connected this to belief. But John connects it. He's not the only one that does, though. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Work. Working today. 1 Corinthians, page 961. We don't have much left. So really engage. This is where it really comes together. Okay? I'm making you a promise. I'm not going to string you out. It's going to come together and you're going to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul wants the church at Corinth to get what we're talking about this morning. Page 961. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Now keep your eye on the football being the gospel. I want to remind you of the football I gave you. Remember that football? He says, I'm, specifically, he's going to say what it is. Which you received, you caught the football, in which you now stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I delivered a football to you is the same football I got. And it's of first importance. And here's the football. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, I want to take you back to something that's of first importance. Because it's that thing in which you are standing. It's that thing in which you are being saved. That he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He didn't have to say the accordance with the scriptures. Right? He could have just said, hey, you remember when I taught you about how he died for our sins? And he was buried and he's resurrected. Yeah, Paul, I remember that. Connects it to the fulfillment in accordance with scriptures. That he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul preached the gospel of first 
importance, one that he wants them to hold fast to as they are standing and being saved. And he tethers these realities to the fulfillment of the Scripture. The footing for the gospel, the gospel of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is Scripture fulfilled. See, it mattered to John, and it mattered to Paul. And this footing seems to be integral to believing. Man, evangelists ought to start preaching some of this. I'm going to tell you what. An evangelist that just gets up and tells you about how crummy his life was and tells you Jesus can change your life, man. God can use that. I don't know how he does, but he can. But I'm going to tell you what. The cream, apparently, for John and for Paul is to connect it to the fulfillment of scriptures. See that? Does this do anything to your believing? I hope so. It's supposed to. Does it do anything to your faith? I mean, are you caught up in this and going, man, this thing is big, boy. This thing is for real. Because it's going to be fulfilled. Everything that he said was going to be fulfilled down to the minutia was fulfilled. So everything that he says is going to be fulfilled, guess what? Is going to be fulfilled down to the minutia. Man. What a powerful book. One last passage I'll share with you. And I want you to see this one. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is after the resurrection. This is on Resurrection Sunday that this conversation is taking place. So it's really appropriate that we gather as a people this morning and we read a conversation that Christ had on the road to Emmaus. Page 855. That very day, on the day that he left the tomb, very vacant. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. About, first time I ever taught on this, I called it Emos. It was about 15 years ago. It's funny. It has nothing to do with this. It's just always funny. <laughs> They're going to a village named Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love the story. Jesus just sort of saddles up next to him. These guys are talking and he's just kind of listening. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, hey, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? What you guys talking about? And they stood still looking sad. And they're like... Dude, where you been? I mean, that's basically what, what they're saying. They're going to say, then one of them says, Clopa, uh, named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in the, in the last days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the, in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. Was it not necessary that all these things have to happen? He takes them to the Scripture because all those things were the fulfillment of Scripture. Later that day, or the next day, we don't know which, he, he appears to the disciples in verse 44, and here's where it really comes to a head. He said to his disciples, he says, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's where we've read today, Exodus, and the prophets, Zechariah, we've read from today, and the Psalms, we've read from today, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 34, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Everything written about me, must be fulfilled. John takes us there in order that you'll believe, looking over his foster grants. Paul takes us there as a gospel of first importance in accordance with the Scriptures. And Jesus takes us there saying everything must be fulfilled. Do you go there? Do you marvel with the reader or the writer that these things were fulfilled just as they were written? Just as they were supposed to? Does it impact your belief? It's supposed to. This morning I'm going to end with application. I want to read my Bible in a new way as a result of this. Application, just listen. In fact, close your Bibles. I want you all to listen. You can jot these passages down, but I really want you, I want to have eye contact with you because I want you to listen to this. Let's consider how we can read our Bibles now with some familiar passages. For example, Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good for those who called according to his purpose. Familiar passage, one that we engage often. Read it this way. In order to fulfill the scriptures, the mess that I was in worked out for good. I've had the crazy privilege of hearing many of your testimonies. The other elders have had to heard the rest of them. If you're a member of this body, we've heard your testimony. And I, the soil of many of those, most of those testimonies has been a mess. And God worked it out for good. And I've heard many a testimony since the beginning of faith where God works a mess out. For good. So in order to fulfill the scriptures, that mess worked out for good. In fact, I would not even know him were it not for that mess. As the scripture said, it came to pass, and so I can bank on it when I'm in the next mess. That he will work it together for good to fulfill the scriptures. That's how sure it is. <laughs> Man, let's read our Bibles in a new way. First Peter chapter 1, listen to this. Someday someone will be able to write. In order to fulfill the scriptures, you could write it now, likely. We rejoice, though we were grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of our faith was found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ through that trial. And that was done in order to fulfill the scriptures. Christ was revealed through our burden and our difficulty and our trial, just like the scripture said he was going to be. He did that in order to fulfill the scriptures. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. Someday someone will be able to write. Will be able to write. In order to fulfill the scriptures, Christ came like a thief in the night. That gives me goosebumps just saying it. In order to fulfill the scriptures, Christ came like a thief in the night. While people were saying, there's peace, there's security. And then sudden destruction came like labor pains on a pregnant woman. In order to fulfill the scriptures, the Lord descended from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. And in order to fulfill the scriptures, the dead in Christ rose first. Just like the scriptures said he would. Lastly, Revelation chapter 20. In order to fulfill the scriptures. Hear this. In order to fulfill the scriptures, we all stood before a white throne. Every single person stood before a white throne, and the quick and the dead were judged in order to fulfill the scriptures. Those found in Christ, their sins were forgiven, and they entered paradise in order to fulfill the scriptures. And those not in Him, those not in the book of life, in order to fulfill the scriptures, were thrown into a lake of fire. What an amazing, amazing story we're part of. What an amazing book we're walking in, in fulfillment of the scriptures. Let's read our Bibles that way. God has spoken and it will come to pass. So believe. Just believe. Walk in fulfillment of the scriptures as one people gathered like an untorn tunic. I'm going to end this morning with a short reading from the book of John. It's where the story goes that I didn't continue reading. It's appropriate that we read it this morning. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Nice touch, John. <laughs> Adding that in there. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. 
standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Let's marvel together for the rest of this morning as we're gathered. Let's marvel together with Mary at the very risen Lord. Let me pray. Lord, we pray and worship right now and enjoy you in fulfillment of the scripture. That you would use a dog like Caiaphas to prophesy about a reality of a people united and created through the finished work of the cross. Lord, I pray as we walk in this that we see identity. It's not just the little ones that see themselves sitting as part of something that we see ourselves as the people of God being part of Scripture fulfillment. Lord, I pray it will shape who we are. I pray it will shape how we live. I pray it will shape how we live in anticipation of those things not yet fulfilled. Lord, I pray it will change and impact how we view our messes. How we will view our trials. God, I am personally grateful for this message. What an awesome God you are. We love you. We celebrate an empty tomb with Mary. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Right now we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's not just something that we do on Easter. It's something that we do uh, weekly here. And we do so as a fulfillment of the Scriptures. It's Christ who said, do this in remembrance of me. The Passover was instituted years before, as Ben has already explained this morning. And on the night before his crucifixion, Christ said, do this, take this Passover supper in remembrance of me, your lamb. Remembrance causes a lot of things. For some, like I said, we do this every Sunday. And so sometimes remembrance causes um, confession of sin. Sometimes remembrance brings about uh, a more stark reality than we maybe had view of before hearing the gospel. Sometimes remembrance brings about um, what, I, what I think it's bringing this morning is, is a celebration. It, it brings about a joyful exaltation in the fact that we have a risen Lord. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, we don't remember him having died on a cross, period. We remember him risen and seated rightly. One pastor's thoughts on this go as follows. In talking about the Lord's Supper that we do in remembrance, as a fulfillment of the Scriptures. I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus. That's what we're proclaiming when we take this supper. That's right remembrance. And hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. 
He's saying, I want to understand my Savior more as I come to the table. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, hear him say, I give my life to purchase yours. Presented myself an offering to expiate your sin. Shed my blood to blot out your guilt. Opened my side in accordance with the scriptures to make you clean. Endured your curses to set you free. Bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love. Receive my Lord to be my life, my strength, my nourishment, my joy, my delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love. I remember his boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more. And sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortal and immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And what will be fulfilled is where our joy comes from and it's this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, who we take this supper in remembrance of. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you humbly this morning. We marvel at your unmatched greatness. No one can open the scroll but you that will be fulfilled. Lord, we are thankful for a risen Savior this morning. We can be easily distracted on Easter. I'm thankful for your word. 
I'm thankful for the preached word. And I'm thankful that by the work of your spirit, you would give us any insight into understanding who you are and what your will is so that we might walk in it for your glory, so that we might put on display in our lives the majestic wonder of a risen Savior who has conquered death. I'm thankful for an empty tomb this morning. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would do so in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would guide our time. I pray that as, as we give uh, sacrificially uh, as you have uh, in tithes and offerings, I pray that it would be done in faith as an act of worship. Let us sing in a right manner. We draw near to you carefully. We thank you for making a way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.